Do you know you actually can manipulate your sleep, especially your dream, and that sometimes can bring a healing power for you. So how do we do that? Let's listen to Doctor Shak. Let's listen to Doctor Shaksman from UCR1 again. He will summarize the most modern literatures and research method in this field to help researchers and scientists to understand how our dream and our memories connect with each other, and also some exciting clinical treatment based on such research. Hi, I'm Dr. Ishan, a board-certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Let's welcome Dr. Shaksman. Hello, Dr. Shaksman. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Hi, great to be here. Very excited. I know you are a great researcher in the field of、uh, memory and sleep. For people who are not in this field, they possibly are not familiar. How can we study memory in sleep, or how can we study this this thing we cannot touch <laughs> or even see directly? Right? It, it sounds like so difficult. So, in your lab or in this field generally, right now, what are some new technologies you guys are using in your lab to really study memory and sleep? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about two different lines of、uh, or, or methods that are being used by my lab and other labs across the world. And the first one I want to talk about is designed to solve the causality question. So we have a problem with sleep. We we can look at slow wave sleep, for example, and how it's correlated with memory improvement. So we have participants go to sleep. They go to sleep. We measure how much slow wave sleep they had. We measure their、uh, improvement in memory, and we can tell something about、uh, about this relationship. But it's still a correlation. It's a correlation, and we don't know exactly what drives what. Or maybe there's this third factor that drives both both these things together. That was one of the major, I think, obstacles in exploring sleep、uh, throughout mo- most of years of, of of this research.、Uh, 15 years ago, a study came out that introduced this new method called. Targeted memory reactivation, and here's the idea behind this method: if we are able to kind of bias the brain or push it towards processing certain memories during sleep, then we could later、uh, we can use that manipulation to test what exactly it is that sleep is doing. So if we are able to make the brain process whatever we want it to process, we can see later how these memories improved, how they changed over time. Over sleep, relative to others that were not that we did not bias, and the way we do this is we actually present stimuli, so、um, sounds and odors during sleep, and we present those not in a very disruptive way. So the sounds are very、uh, low, low volume. The odors are not very not invasive odors that. Might make you、uh, wake up, such as the、uh, odor of the of the、uh, gas that that's leaking from your、uh, from your gas line. It's it's relatively pleasant odors and low level sounds that are connected to certain memories. The first,、uh, at least, the、uh, modern study that uses uses this technique is uh, from uh, Bjorn Rasch and、uh, Jan Born in two thousand seven. And what they did 
was they linked an odor, in that case it was an rose odor, with a bunch of memories that, that participants encoded for, uh, it was like a memory game where different items were. And then they, they presented that odor during uh, during sleep. And when they presented during slow wave sleep, specifically during slow wave sleep, they saw improvements in memory. They didn't see the same for REM sleep. Um, so that's, again, this idea of declarative memories. So memories, in this case, for a specific uh, lo lo where things are located on a screen. Uh, since that, that really important study uh, almost uh, more than 15 years ago, that finding has been replicated many, many times. Importantly, one of the biggest breakthroughs was two years later in Ken Powler's lab at Northwestern, uh, where they did a study that involves sounds and not odors. And the big breakthrough there was that the sounds were linked to specific memories. It's not that the rose, like the rose order that was linked to all these different memories together, but here you had a, uh, a cat's meowing, uh, the sound of a cat meowing linked to one of those locations on the screen where a cat was actually, you see a little image of a cat. Or you have a, a sound of a kettle or a sound of a harmonica or, or all these different sounds that are specific to things on the screen. And then later, some of these sounds, not all of them, were presented during sleep unobtrusively, low volume. Participants do not wake up. They don't remember hearing that, uh, hearing those sounds during sleep at all. But when they wake up and are tested on all these items, we see this, uh, this effect that these specific items that we played got better, whereas the others uh, did not get as, as uh, well, they don't really get better. They, they get less worse because there's general forgetting in general for a lot of these tasks. The items that we presented don't get as as bad as the other ones. Since these studies, again, there's been over a hundred studies with pretty uh, impressive uh, replications for these studies and other studies. And the big breakthrough of this method is that. So there's two things to think about. First is now we can play around with sleep and kind of manipulate it the same way we do with other forms of, uh, of uh, cognitive tasks during, during wakefulness. I mean, during wakefulness, you have this uh, plethora of tasks that, that are run in labs across the, uh, around the globe um, using different techniques uh, and different manipulations. And up until now in sleep, we were just observers. And now finally we have the chance to, to do, to manipulate. And the second exciting thing about this is that it really um, takes us towards interventions that might be useful using these same methods. Uh, ideas such as using these methods to treat um, memory-related disorders such as PTSD or major depression and other sorts of, of disorders that really have a memory component to them. And if we can manipulate that, we, we might be able to help participants during their sleep. In many ways, that's still a promise that is yet to come into fruition. Uh, and we're, I think me and other labs are working on it uh, in, in various different ways. There was one, one impressive uh, achievement in the last year uh, from uh, Sophie Schwartz's uh, group in, in Switzerland, where they used a TMR-like approach to actually alleviate um, uh, nightmares in participants with nightmare disorders. So patients with nightmare disorders came into the, into the clinic they engaged in imagery rehearsal therapy, which is one of the uh, therapies that are most uh, relevant to this disorder. So they basically imagined a different scenario um, within their nightmare 
And later during sleep, uh, some one group of these participants, the, this um, this therapy, this uh, IRT, the uh, imagery rehearsal therapy, was reactivated for the other that wasn't, and, and they showed long sustained and uh, quite impressive benefits to that uh, group that had targeted memory reactivation. So that's again from this last year, uh, just came out pretty recently, and I'm hoping this is just the first of many studies that will show. Yeah, so maybe before I, I talk about the second, so that was uh -huh. all under the, the first of the two, but maybe before we talk about the second one that you... Uh... Right. So far, sounds like um, I, I, I learned about TMR in the recent conference. It's really cool. And that's just to get me to think clinically what we are doing, just like you said, when people are awake, right? When people are awake, for people really stressed out or have emotion disorders, emotional disorders, we tend to introduce this grounding technique, also use our five senses. The order you talk about certain songs, certain flavors, it can really help soothe people in a lot of situations, but that's when they are awake. Right. It sounds like as the research develops, we are able to transfer that somewhat to this more subconscious passive state. Uh, and uh, when people are asleep, they don't have to actively learn and do something, but through combining wakeful uh, stage, doing something and then sleep through the night, we can also do this kind of intervention to help them somewhat for their mental health. I think that's very exciting to me, especially. I agree. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very exciting direction. I wouldn't imagine it would, it would replace therapy practices, but I think it would supplement them. Specifically, where when we think that um, in some in some uh, conditions, when we think that sleep plays some role, some functional role in escalating a certain uh, condition or in um, in processing memories in maladaptive ways, I think these kind of interventions will be yet useful because up until now, we didn't really have any way to do anything about what is doing, going on during sleep. We could have done a lot about whether participants are able to sleep more or less. Uh, we do CBTI to help them, uh, to help alleviate symptoms of insomnia to make them sleep uh, sleep more. And, and, and we have different interventions to make them sleep uh, in different Times so there's there's a lot we can do about the structure the architecture of sleep, but here we're looking past architecture and into the function of sleep. Into so if you imagine this as a building, we're we're not only designing the exterior walls and kind of uh, dividing the different levels. We're talking about what's inside. We're talking about the furniture. We're talking about what is how these how these different stages look like. What do they do? What makes them unique and how we can impact the, the substance and, and, the, and the cognitive content of, of sleep processing. And that's really exciting in a, in a very new direction that up until now seemed, uh, so up until a few years ago, seemed like science fiction. Yeah, right, right. So hopefully later there's a way for people, you know, each of us individuals can bring some of this practice into home on our own we can do something, right? Right now, I know a lot of this happen in lab. There has to be researchers or clinicians there guide a lot of this 
uh, strategies and manipulate what happened of our memories in dream. But hopefully in the future, people can have some simpler ways to take home on their own to practice. Because for me, after reading the research, knowing a little bit of this, I was like, hmm, I don't know how to transfer this to home. I cannot just uh, make a certain order for myself, right? A certain sound that may actually interrupt my sleep instead of help it. There's a, so there's recent advances in that field as well. Recent, uh, so the, the study uh, by Schwartz and all that I mentioned earlier for nightmare disorder, that was actually done at home. Uh, so sleep at home and not in the clinic. There's uh, a few recent technological advances that way may allow us in the future to use cell phones with smartwatches or with uh, wearable, wearables to just for this purpose. Dr. Nathan Whitmore from uh, MIT, the postdoc at MIT, developed this algorithm that basically uses the Fitbit data to uh, to cue target memory activation uh, during during sleep without the need of electrophysiology, without EG just based on Fitbit data. And I think that's just, again, this is just the first step and a lot of promise in that in that area as well. Um, and there's also like more low-tech studies that use just, you know, odors presenting in the room throughout the night and also find, uh, find these nice effects as well. Um, so there's a lot of different lines of research that are now exploring how to take this approach and, and, and out of the clinic, out of the lab or clinic and into homes. Um, okay, wow. Yeah. Very promising. Okay, look forward to that. So this is the one line of research. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Wow. So, okay. so that is targeted memory activation. The other thing I wanted to talk about a bit is, so that is like, that is uh, causally manipulating uh, sleep content. But we're also making advances in reading uh, what it, what the brain is processing while it's doing that. Neuroimaging techniques for um so ever since they they came into public uh, discourse, there's been this notion of using MRI or EEG to read brains. Can you read my brain and so on? And the answer is always, and it remains, the technology is not there and will likely never really get there. But what we can do a lot of times is look at categories that are reactivated. So, um, for example, in MRI studies during wakefulness we can know whether a participant is viewing pictures of a face uh, a face of someone or a house or a, a, a location and so on so we can make we can use uh, neuroimaging to decode what exactly it is that they are viewing at any given time using similar techniques and over the past few years we've started to use this to kind of decode i'm using the word decode um, because of, 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 I'm alluding to machine learning algorithms that kind of take data and try to uh, extract uh, some substance out of it. So we're using these sort of techniques uh, and, and new computational me uh, methods to really understand what it is that is processed at any given time in the brain. And we use this during sleep. So that just uh, so we can look at specific periods of sleep and see, which memories, or at least which category of memories, is reactivated at any given time. And that's really exciting because um, we can start really looking at, at sleep and understanding what the brain is doing, not based on the subsequent memory or, you know, when they when participants wake up, how did things change, but really looking 
online at sleep while participants are sleeping and using these techniques to understand what the brain is doing, at least in very coarse ways. There's, well, there are a few studies that came out over the last uh, a few years using different techniques, but all kind of converged to this idea that we are getting close to using this te these techniques in more and more kind of finessed, uh, high-resolution ways and, and exploring where it is that's happening during sleep. And, and that holds promise, I think, for a lot of different ways. First of all, as a method for us neuroscientists, it's exciting that we can get more, more information about the contents of sleep processing. But I also think going back to this idea that there's some sort of maladaptive processing happening during sleep in, in some conditions and some, some disorders, uh, whether they're sleep disorders, neurological disorders, psychiatric disorders, generally this idea that there's something awry in, in, the, in the brain during uh, happening during sleep, this might pave the way towards diagnostic tools that are actually used in the clinic in these kinds of situations to understand what might be going wrong there in, in, the, in a patient's brain that we might be able to intervene with, uh, or at least understand it at, at, at the first at the first point. Wow. So if I understand it correctly, this sounds like one step further than the typical sleep study we are doing right now, right? Because in the sleep clinic, in order to diagnose a certain sleep disorder, what we can do is to do the sleep study and you are wired up all over your body, but it's not so much about the neuroimaging. I think there are some basic EEG data, and um, but many other breathing and other, other data going in. But sounds like we can do more for the neural processing part when we sleep. Exactly. So whereas most uh, uh, studies in the clinic would involve just a few electrodes, maybe five, uh, five EG electrodes and then um, uh, electrode to measure, to measure uh, eye activity and muscle and cardiac activity. Uh, for these studies, we usually use high-density EG caps that give us uh, rich information about, uh, about activity throughout the scalp. And we can also use MRI. We can use, we, we have now EG uh, caps and devices that are compatible with the high magnetic uh, fields that are involved in MRI imaging. And we can have both of them together uh, using the, the EG to basically to, to score sleep, to know which stage of sleep we are in, together with MRI to uh, explore more, mostly spatial resolution, higher spatial resolution events uh, and networks that will allow us to, uh, to understand this better. A pioneering, a pioneering study from about 10 years ago uh, looked into whether we can read dream content, at least at the category level, using MRI. And that was uh, somewhat successful, although I think uh, in a, in a bit limited it was during uh, um, sleep onset, so during N1, not during REM sleep, if I remember correctly. In general, though, I, that, that was, I think, that kind of was the first step towards these newer techniques that we're starting to use. Even with EG, we can, without... The, these MRI uh, uh, machines, which are super uh, expensive, busy with uh, with a lot of uh, patient work, even without requiring MRIs, uh, we still get quite a bit of information in the EEG. And in fact, most of my studies use EEG for for that purpose, for uh, for decoding content rather than uh, rather than relying on MRI. Even though I do have some studies that that 
that do both. So I am exploring both of these avenues. And, I, and again, it's very early days. Uh, and I think that moving forward, we'll see uh, some, some substantial advances in our understanding of sleep and, and sleep processing based on these techniques. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Sounds like the, the deeper, the more you research in this with all this like new technologies, combine them, you will be able to really identify, right? Uh, normal activities, abnormal activities and understand, help with the diagnose process or even treatment process. And also on the other end, I'm thinking about all these fiction movies, right? Maybe one day we will really be able to know what people are dreaming about. Yeah, I think that it's it's really important that you brought this up because I would imagine that for many viewers, a lot of what I'm talking about is is kind of frightening in a lot of ways. It's really ethically, it's really concerning for a, a bunch of reasons. I think the first reason, and that's one of the things that makes sleep unique, is that we have these interventions without the participant conscious, and we are uh, so. If you have an MRI study and you're looking at a participant, uh, at a participant's brain and reading out which categories they're they're observing, at the very least they're they're conscious, they're they're participating in in, in the process. And here, they have no control over what we might be reading. They're asleep, and I think that's that's something we should we should think about a lot. And we think we as a field do think about it quite a bit. And the same goes for the targeted memory reactivation interventions that I mentioned earlier. Participants obviously consent to being part of these studies and they know that we are manipulating memories during sleep. It doesn't involve manipulations of a person that is not fully conscious. And I think uh, even with full consent, it is something that we should keep in mind and think about more and more. And maybe the last the ethical aspect to it is that because these are new methods and these are new interventions, we still don't completely know what, what target memory activation, for example, what, what that might do to these other memories. Uh, I think that now after, again, more than 100 studies, we know that it doesn't create this very, very deep detrimental effect or maybe even specific detrimental effects. This technique has proven pretty safe in any study that has been done so far. But it is still something that whenever you, um, whenever you do any sort of interventions that are new, you should keep in mind. And, and I, I didn't want to kind of uh, not leave that in the dark. These are issues that we talk about and we think about, and they're complicated, but I think that we're doing a pretty good job handling them at this point as a field. Yeah, yeah. Sounds um, like we need to approach that definitely with caution, ethically, and reduce the harm, but also sounds like it's it's quite safe method right now. I definitely got a lot of questions from people, not for research, but for sleep study. A lot of people feel like if I put all these things on my body, on my brain, on, on my head, it, 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 what if it harmed me? Especially for children. I have a lot of um, parents worry about sleep study may hurt their children. And so they refuse to let their children check out but that can cause other problems, right? If the children do have sleep disorders and they don't get diagnosed, that can uh, lead to health consequences. So I think it's important for us to talk about this as a field and to help educate the public too. What is safe? What you should consider? What are some things to think about, to discuss before and after the, the experiments? Yes, I completely agree. Great, cool. We learned so much from you and uh, so exciting to know all this new development in the field. So um, at the end, so 
if you know a lot of people who are listening or watching are very interested in this, and uh, based on all the research you know, all the knowledge you know so far, is there any final wisdom you want to share with uh, all the audience about you know sleep and memory? Um, maybe just one general note, which is I think that uh, when sleep became implicated, when, when sleep was implicated in, in memory processing, I think that um, everyone thought the picture was pretty simple. Whereas the richness of wake life, life is something that we perceive consciously. We know that we have moods, we have interactions, we are different in different contexts and so on. During sleep, it seems like it's a very simple, uniform process. And it's just, you know, okay, so there's different stages of sleep and those basically set the boundaries. Whereas wakefulness is this rich experience of a lot of different states. Stage three or slow wave sleep is stage three slow sleep. That's it. That's what it is. And I think now with time, we're starting to acknowledge more and more that there's a richness to the way the brain processes information that is similar between wake and sleep. And the, we have obstacles in exploring it the same way we could explore uh, the wake cognition. But I think that those obstacles shouldn't confuse us and shouldn't make us believe that sleep is, sleep processing is one-dimensional and simple. And the more we learn about it, some of my studies have looked at uh, memories in context. So not just these memories that, I mean, memories are hard to define in real life because they're usually part of this rich event that involves multiple moving parts. And during sleep, we don't really know how those moving parts play any role. Do they, do they interact in sleep like they do during wakefulness? So my recent, stu my recent studies uh, suggest that they do, that really sleep, that memory processing during sleep is as complicated and complex and layered and rich as it is during wakefulness. And I'm diving more and more into that complexity. But I do want to kind of... Um, Put out there the notion that memory processing and cognitive processing in general during sleep may prove to be as complicated and as layered as it is during during wake, but it might follow completely different rules that we have to learn, that we have to that we have to figure out, and it's an exciting time to to ask these questions and to explore this field. Yeah, so keep a more open mind to this field, right? More to come in the near future, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, that, that's for sure, yes. <laughs> yeah. So if uh, our listeners want to learn more about your research, your work, where can they find you? So they can find me on Twitter. I am uh, TMR, that's target memory reactivation, TMR underscore at underscore all. So TMR at all, basically. Um, or they can just search my name, obviously. Uh, they can visit the lab website as well. Um, so uh, I won't spell that out, but you can just search uh, cognitive neuroscience of sleep, uh, UC Irvine. Um, that will probably be the first result that will that will pop up. Um, and they're welcome to, to reach out. I'd love to, to hear people's thoughts about uh, these ideas. I'm always, uh, always open to discussing um, these really intriguing ideas. Uh, further with anyone who's interested in exploring them. Yes, great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Schechtman, for sharing all this um, nuanced research and this whole new field in sleep. And uh, um, I'm sure, hopefully, anyone listening or interested will reach out to you to discuss further. Thank you very much. 
So, how do you think about today's conversation? You can find another part of the conversation in the previous episode in the Deep Into Sleep podcast. If you like my show, you can subscribe our email newsletter at mindbodygarden.com/sleep. Just a reminder: we just start new English YouTube channel, Mind Body Garden Psychology. If you are interested in any topics like mental health, sleep health, or sexual health, please consider subscribe and follow us on YouTube. I'm Dr. Shen. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you next time. Bye. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk, and our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed.